Hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, although for quite a while there, there really wasn't a whole lot of discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows going on because of the fact that Trennis Magnus Punches Reality was on hiatus for quite a while there. But I'm back now, and one of the things that I just could not wait to do was start talking about some Legion of Superheroes comics, specifically the five years later era of the Legion. Now, you might ask yourself, why is it that I want to talk so badly about the five years later era? Because when you think about it, it's not just anybody who has Legion of Superheroes five years later and one of their favorite comic book reading experiences of all time. So I think it's fair to ask, what gives? You know, what's up with that? And for me, what it comes down to is, as odd as it may seem, because of the fact that five years later is, it's so dystopic, at least to start with, it's, it's very dystopic. And it's kind of uh, dark, you know, that sort of grim dark type stuff that uh, comics would, some would say, overindulge in during the 1990s. There's plenty of that going on with uh, the Five Years Later era of the Legion. Notwithstanding those things, there's something to me just so quintessentially 80s about the Legion of Superheroes Five Years Later, uh, Later era. And I don't mean that in this weird, goofy, silly, almost passive-aggressive type of, you know, 80s appreciation. Or for that matter, you know, maybe in the... When some people say it's something is very 80s, they, they mean it almost, like, pejorative. I don't mean any of that. I mean... I realize it may run sort of, like I say, sort of contrary to the tone and style of what Five Years Later is, but like I say, there's something very 80s about it, and what I mean by that is 80s in that sort of aspirational retro future type type of way. You know, like the retro future art and just visions of the future that were prevalent in the 1980s. Something about the Legion of Superheroes in general really hits upon that, but specifically the Five Years Later era. And again, I'm, I'll be the first to admit that at least when I think of that 1980s retro future, aspirational, futuristic type stuff, it's usually a vision of the future where, you know what? Things are going to turn out okay. You know, things are going to be all right. Uh, we're not going to uh, blow ourselves up. You know, we're not we're not going to get involved in a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. You know, we're not we're we're not going to destroy ourselves. You know, the future is going to be okay. You know, the future is going to be amazing. In fact, the future is going to be a great place to live. It's going to be a great place to raise a family, and a lot of similar types of things that people of my generation remember from the 80s but don't really see as very likely in our own futures. That's the sort of thing that I mean, you know? And that's really one of the reasons why the Legion of Superheroes, uh, or at least this iteration of the Legion of Superheroes, has used as its musical soundtrack a lot of synthwave type stuff because of the fact that 
synthwave as a genre generally relies upon not like that 80s retro future type stuff, but sort of like an, a nostalgia for the 80s, just the, like the culture of, uh, of the 80s and all that. And to me, mixed up in all of that, yes, is 80s retro future, you know? It's not specific, like Synthwave is not specifically about that, but at the same time, you can't really ignore it either, you know? So for me, I just thought it was a pretty good fit for the Legion of Superheroes as a comic book, if not necessarily quite perfect for this era, this specific chapter of five years later that I'm going to be talking about, because I think, you know, this iteration of the Legion, they actually do go on into, you know, fairly, you know, lighter and brighter uh, types of stories and, and tones and styles and all that stuff. At least to start with, no, the stories that are being told are not quite like that, but I still think Synthwave is nevertheless a very good match for that. So anyway, so that's my reason for using so much uh, Synthwave and in these episodes so you'll take it and you'll like it sir so anyway so that's that stuff now last time uh, what I did was I was uh, I finished up my discussion by uh, talking about Legion of Superheroes number two so it would seem logical that the only place I can possibly start this episode is with Legion of Superheroes volume four number three Cover date is January of 1990. Uh, cover price is a buck seventy-five, so noticeably more expensive than a lot of mainstream DC comics of that time. Executive editor is Dick Giordano. Cover artist, uh, cover artists are Keith the GIF Giffen and Al Gordon. Writers are the GIF, Tom Beerbaum, Mary Beerbaum, and Al Gordon. Penciler is The GIF, inker is Al Gordon, colorist is Tom McCraw, letterer is Todd Klein, editor is Mark Wade. Story synopsis is as follows. Mordru holds Rond Vidar captive, torturing, uh, torturing him and destroying his Green Lantern ring. He's then informed by one of his probes that the old Legion of Superheroes, uh, the members of the old Legion of Superheroes, are in the process of recreating the team. Elsewhere, on the planet Rimbor, Chameleon Boy and Cosmic Boy reach out to Ultra Boy, who enthusiastically agrees to join. He also brings along his sidekick, Kono, into the fold. Meanwhile, EarthGov releases Roxas, the Butcher of Tron, from prison in order to send a message to the quickly reassembling Legionnaires. Roxas brutally murders Block, another former Legionnaire, and sends his body to Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl who are living on Wynoth. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, this is another issue of five years later, and at least for me, it's another home run. Now, one of the things that I meant to do in my discussion about Legion of Superheroes number two from the last episode. One of the things I wanted to do is just sort of touch upon uh, a live journal that's managed, or at least was managed, I don't know if it's actually if it's actively being updated right now, but at least at one time, Tom Beerbaum had uh, he, he basically ran his own live journal, and he would take I would say some very in-depth and very extensive looks back 
at various and sundry elements of his career, including the Legion of Superheroes five years later. So if you're looking for that, you can find it at itsokayimasenator.livejournal.com, or you could take the, the uh, easy way out and just Google It's Okay, I'm a Senator and see what you come up with. I'm betting it probably won't take very long for you to find Tom Bierbaum's journal, but basically he talks, at least in the when it, when it comes to this uh, third issue of the Legion of Superheroes, he talks in, I would say, some fairly good depth about Legion of Superheroes number three, specifically the, the angle of Roxas uh, murdering Block. And what Tom Bierbaum writes is, the original plan on Keith's part, what, meaning the GIF, the original plan on Keith's part was to have Roxas kill Siobhan Aaron, the girlfriend of, of Jana Ra, but our inker, Al Gordon, thought killing Siobhan was a waste of a good character and implored Keith to kill somebody else. Keith challenged Al to think of somebody else to do something interesting with Sh uh, or rather, Keith challenged Al to think of something else to do interesting with uh, Siobhan, and the first thing that, uh, actually this isn't really about Block so much, but, 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 but yeah, here we go. Uh, the, uh, he goes on to say, it's interesting and probably not coincidence that issue number three includes a scene of Siobhan herself mourning Block's demise. Probably an ironic touch on Keith's part. I think that scene is pretty effective showing, I hope, somebody reacting the way they would truly react if a gentle soul like Block was murdered so callously and as a consequence of evil, manipulative government. I think a lot of people, myself included, didn't particularly like the idea of killing off Block, but it seemed a lot more palatable than some of the other possibilities. Honestly, Block had never amounted to much, but I had a fondness for the guy who was originally introduced as a villain and just kind of glommed onto the group for no particular reason. He was the kind of nice guy, background filler, that was always one of the most in important elements of the Legion's appeal for me, meaning Tom Bierbaum. But by this era, filling, uh, filling the background wasn't really an acceptable role for a character, and I regretted losing Block less than I'd have regretted uh, a lot of other characters that might have bitten the dust in that story. It's of particular significance that Block was non-humanoid, and like nearly all the less human characters in Legion hi uh, history, he just never caught on the way uh, the more human characters did. So I'm going to go ahead and at least for the moment put a pin in this uh, live journal entry from Tom Bierbaum to say that, guys, the last thing I would ever want somebody to do listening to any of my Legion of Superheroes episodes would be... The last thing I would want anyone to, uh, to do is somehow get the idea that... I'm some kind of a Legion of Superheroes expert. I really enjoy uh, the Five Years Later era, or at least parts of the GIFs run. I would say the majority of the GIFs run on Five Years Later, but not necessarily all of it. Honestly, I could take or leave this iteration of the Legion once the GIF leaves the books. And I enjoy... Uh, I should say the first year, maybe two years, of the post-Zero Hour Legion. I'm rapidly, honestly, losing my taste for the three-boot Legion. It's just not as... It's just sometimes when you really start studying things and really analyzing it, what you realize is maybe this isn't as good as I originally thought. And that's kind of where I am with the three-boot Legion. 
when it comes to, I guess, Legion of Superheroes Volume 3, the series that preceded the one we're talking about right now, when it comes to Paul, you know, Paul Levitt's, you know, doing the writing and uh, just some of the amazing stories that came out of that. I enjoyed that book. But I, I'm one of those people who thinks that simply enjoying something doesn't necessarily give you the right to call yourself a fan of it, you know? Because to me, somebody who's a fan of something needs to have a little bit of knowledge about it. You know, you, you kind of need to know what you're talking about. And I don't consider myself to be an expert uh, on pretty much anything, really. When it comes to the Legion of Superheroes, I enjoy reading these comics and and all of that. But, I, you know, I must say that I don't consider myself a fan. But one of the... Or, a fan in the sense of being an expert on something, you know, I do enjoy reading them, but not, I don't know if I have the right to call myself a fan is the point. But I think one of the things that I really enjoy about this series is the fact that number one, it's got ambition. Okay. This series wanted to be something different from what had come before. So there's that to think about. But one of the, one of the things that the five years later era intentionally or not, one of the things that it ended up doing was bringing a lot of the seriousness and grit and whatnot that had been shown in things like The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, bringing those things into mainstream DC continuity. Now, whether or not you think that's a good thing is kind of beside the point. The point is that was sort of foreign to uh, mainstream DC universe continuity at that time. And so just by showing up five years later is a little bit of a breath of fresh air. So there's that to think about. The other thing is the, I don't want to reduce all of this down to, to the gifts art and just say, man, I really love the art because to me, it, it's almost like that's doing the gif kind of a disservice in a weird kind of way. I enjoy the art in as much as I, yes, I like the line style. I like the work that's on the page, but I also like the ambition and the intention behind the art. You know, yes, the art is good by itself. It, it's great. I would never say otherwise, but there's something deeper to it than just that, I think. And that's what I, that's what I enjoy. You know, the ambition of the art, you know, uh, the, the nine, the nine panel grid that is used at least a lot in Keith Giffen's issues. Now, other artists would kind of go their own way, but at least when the GIF is drawing uh, uh, the stories, you see a lot of that nine-panel grid. And in, in some sense, yes, it, it, you could argue that it's a little bit derivative of Watchmen. But at the same time, I mean, a nine-panel grid, it's not like uh, it's not like Dave Gibbons created that. He's the guy that invented that. That was pretty much the norm in comics for decades, really. And I would say that Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons didn't really innovate when it comes to the, the, the nine-panel grid with Watchmen. They basically took something that had, like I say, had existed in, in, in comics for decades upon decades, and basically they just brought it back. So the reason I'm kind of harping on this is because show me the comic book artist today who even aspires to use any kind of grid. 
And then on top of that, show, you know, uh, you know, of that rarefied space, show me the artist who's willing to have nine panels on, on, on one page, you know, show, so I guess what I'm saying is show me anyone who even uses a grid anymore. And then on top of that, show me somebody who's got the balls to put nine panels on a comic book page anymore. And just by itself, you know, this is very much a welcome change, at least for me. So anyway, I don't know when it happened that comic book artists decided that, hey, you know, these these storytelling principles that have worked in comics for decades and decades. Hey, fuck that. You know, we don't need that anymore. We're just going to uh, scatter a bunch of fucking bullshit around on the page. And hey, here's, you know, here's your comic cost. Now pay us three ninety nine. You know, fuck you. Or four ninety nine actually these days. But anyway, wow, this is kind of turning into a rant. So uh, moving right along, getting into uh, page one here. We basically get, this is kind of a quick and some would say maybe expedient way of doing some exposition and just checking in on a variety of characters, just sort of rapid fire, just boom, 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 boom. You know, uh, page one basically drops in on nine different characters and... A lot of stuff is revealed here, or it's implied here, or what, but, well, I'll, I'll just give you an example, all right? So you got page one, panel one, right? This uh, this is basically monitoring uh, Nura Nall, uh on the planet Naltor, and some jackass is addressing her as a Madam High Seer. So right then and there, you get the idea that Dream Girl has... Well, she's gotten a promotion or two in the last five years. So that's kind of interesting. Next, page one, panel two, <clears throat> on the planet Earth, this is a, a, a vid tap of Dirk Morgna, and he's face-to-face -face with a dominator, guys. So what the fuck is that about? And this is one of those things, as we go through all of this, I'm not going to really guard too much against spoiling ahead. And that kind of runs contrary to a lot of the uh, uh, what what has been standard practice on Trinus Magnus Punch's reality from time immemorial. I'm not going to guard against spoilers in this case, because what I want to do as I talk about these issues of the Legion, I want to just kind of indulge in, and luxuriate in all of these tiny little details that are inserted in, uh, into the issues that are maybe easy to miss, but when you look back at things you can kind of appreciate it a little bit more. And so I'm not necessarily guarding against spoilers. I mean, there's some, there's, there are some things that happen in issue number four that I kind of want to say for the episode that I do about issue number four. But at least for right now, you know, I'm okay with talking about at least some spoilers. So all of this is an unnecessarily long way of saying that basically what's being implied here is that Dirk is on pretty friendly terms with the Dominators, or at least he's not openly hostile to them, which is a kind of a change of pace for a former Legionnaire. You'd expect that pretty much the minute a Dominator enters the room, the Legionnaire is going to go into full combat mode, and that's clearly not what's happening here. Obviously, there's some kind of a dialogue that's taking place here that involves Dirk and at least one Dominator, and basically what's being implied here is not only is Dirk on friendly terms, seemingly, with at least one Dominator, but what's ultimately being set up here is that the Dominators have, 
they've basically taken control of EarthGov, right? And I'm of the opinion that art doesn't necessarily need to imitate life. But at the same time, we're not really doing our... We're not. We're, we're just not really being honest if we we ignore how real world events, or at least real world ideas, influence art. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is, we're not really we're not really being honest with the material if we don't admit to ourselves that there are times when real world ideas might seep into our movies or our, our comics or a TV show or just fucking whatever. And there's a conspiracy theory that, or actually there, are, I say there's a conspiracy theory. There are conspiracy theories that hold that because I'm an American, we'll just run with that that the United States government has been subverted and has been subverted, in fact, for quite some time, but has been subverted by secret powers, you know? Uh, call it call it anything you want, you know, the Trilateral Commission or the Illuminati or, for that matter, like, literal aliens. Uh, some people believe that. Uh, just on and on and on, you know? And... Uh, not like this is a completely new thing either. I mean, it goes back at least as far as the 1950s. Uh, you know, these ideas that the government is being or has been infiltrated by hostile foreign agents and is being subverted to work against American interests and all that. This is one of those things that, you know, all of the different conspiracy theories and whatnot that I've read over the decades... It just sort of reminds me of that, except in this case, the conspiracy theory is actually fucking true. I mean, the Dominators really did take, o take over EarthGov. I mean, they're running the show. And again, it just kind of reminds me of all of these different conspiracy theories that people have of this group or that group. They secretly control the government and all that. And anyway, so like I say, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are two levels at which panel two kind of works for me. There's the, there's just the, the careful and subtle storytelling that's going on here where the gif isn't necessarily putting things on pause and saying that, Hey guys, Dirk Morgna is in league with the bad guys. But if you read between enough lines, you kind of start asking yourself, Hey, wait, wait, what, what the fuck is going on here? You know? And all of that. I just really dig this panel. I really dig this subplot, you know, this Dominators thing. I just, I just really like that. That is, just love it. It's, uh, because the reason it kind of works for me is, I mean, number one, it explains, or at least it kind of suggests why it is that the Legion of Superheroes ever went away in the first place. But number two, it just kind of plays into this idea that I've always had that, you know, whenever we read these comic books, we always read stories of, the the heroes fighting the villains and the heroes win and they send the villains packing and five years later basically takes place in a context in which the bad guys won all right the bad guys won the bad guys were able to secretly take over earthgov and then they used the powers of earthgov to uh harass persecute and otherwise subjugate the legion of superheroes basically uh, <clears throat> I guess just death by a thousand cuts, right? 
persecute them out of existence so that the dominators could have a clear field to work with. And the reason that works for me is because, guys, you know, all of these supervillains coming up with all of these different plans for world domination, you'd think that sooner or later, one or two of them would probably work. And this is the story, five years later, is generally the story about the time that one of them finally worked, you know? And I just dig the honesty of that. I dig the balls of that. I dig the ambition of that. It just works for me on so many levels. And here I am. I'm closing in on like 20 minutes into this episode, and I'm only on panel two of the first page. So maybe I should pick up the pace here a little bit. But anyway, the point is, what I'm trying to say is that on page one, we check in with a bunch of different characters... And a lot of different things get uh, get implied or suggested or they get set up or just, you know, whatever. But all in all, I just I just dig the way that the GIF is telling the story here, because like I said in the last episode, stuff like this truly is the sign of real talent, of real mastery. You know, this is how you know that the GIF is nothing to fuck with when it comes to comics. He doesn't mess around. And I just cherish everything that that he's doing and trying to do with this series. It's just ridiculously good. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. Anyway, so moving right along, pa uh, panel three, this is about Janna Ra uh, uh, on the planet Trom. And the thing is, we, we're seeing things from the point of view of all of these different characters. So panel one is from the, from the point of view of Neuronal. Uh, panel two is from the point of view of Dirk Morgna. Panel three is from the point of view of Janna Ra, etc. And what we see in panel three from Element Lab, which is to say Janna Ra, from his point of view, is basically Trom, and it's empty, it's broken, it's squalid, it's desolate. It, it just begs the question, what the fuck happened here? You know, because if you remember Trom from, we'll just use volume three as our example, it didn't exactly look all beat up and chewed up and wasted away like this, so what the hell is going on? And the thick plottings with uh, uh, panel four here, it's basically uh, cast about in total darkness from the... There's nothing to be seen except a dim spark of light in the corner. Word bubbles are distorted you can't really read what's being said and it's on the planet uh, Shanghala and the name that it lists is Largand so Monel is alive because he seemed pretty dead at the end of volume 3 so again what the hell is going on, you know, and all of that. And so it, it just goes on from there. We check in with Dawnstar, with Breck Bannon, Tom Kalor, uh, Brainiac 5, uh, Reap Daggle, and I guess in the process also Rock Crin. And first off, like I say, this is a great way of expositing goings on with a bunch of different uh, uh, Legionnaires all at once. Um, it it establishes, I think, let's see, there are nine panels on this page. One, two, 
three, four. A minimum of four of them suggest uh, story elements and subplots that we're going to see anywhere from the next month to the next maybe year and a half or so of Legion stories. Stuff is getting set up right here that's going to get paid off very soon and in the distant future. And, God, I just love this series. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. So, anyway, moving on finally to page two, we find out what all of these different uh, check-ins and uh, video taps, what these things are really all about. And these are basically... Uh, Mordru's probes, they're basically watching all of the different uh, legionnaires with instructions that, hey, if it ever looks like these people are, are, are going to mount some kind of uh, resistance or if they ever try to regroup with each other, let me know. So those are Mordru's orders. His probes find out, yep, that's exactly what Chameleon Boy and Cosmic Boy are up to. So uh, he rushes off uh, to check in with Mordru and he can't even really get a, a word in edgewise because Mordru is in the process of basically torturing the shit out of uh, Ron Vidar. And guys, I don't expect all of you necessarily to agree with me on this, but my sense of Mordru has always been, Yes, he's got a little bit of a god complex. Yes, he's a sick, twisted, sadistic son of a bitch. You know, yes, all of those things are true. All that and more. But one of the key and fundamental truths of Mordru, at least for me, is that quite apart from his obsession with torture and murder and violence and all this stuff, the guy is just fucked up, okay? This guy is nuts, all right? Uh, I guess you could kind of call him, he, he's sort of like Emperor Nero with magic powers, okay? To me, that's basically Mordru, right? If, if Emperor Nero had magical abilities, shit like this is probably the stuff that he would do, right? But you can't really... You can't... To me, you just you you can't oppose, you can't really ignore. Just to me, what I at least consider to be the psycho angle. I mean, you're almost not really being again. You're almost not being honest with the material if you don't acknowledge that this guy is. He's just fucking nuts, and so that's what I think is going on here. But as far as the god complex is concerned, this is one of the most insightful bits of monologue that they come around sometimes in comics and say so much about who a character is and what the universe of his thinking is like. This is, I think, very illustrative, so to speak, of Mordru. Uh, he's basically talking to uh, Ron Vidar as Rond is uh, getting tortured. And Mordru says... I was young, uh, too. Sorry, I was once young, too, you know. I remember what it's like. No power too great to oppose. So confident in your own power. So certain some little trinket can overcome all. And he's holding a green lantern ring in his hand. So certain some little trinket can overcome all. So impatient to conquer the unconquerable. Ah, but Mordru is not without mercy. 
I grant you this fate, that you might appreciate your folly and do penance for all eternity. And he says that right as he he crushes the Green Lantern ring into splinters. And number one, I mean, that just says so much about how Mordrew thinks, you know? Number two, it says even more about just what a sick, twisted son of a bitch the guy is. And number three, the fact that he's basically condemning Rond Vidar to what amounts to an eternity of torture. Does that make sense? Basically, Rond Vidar is going to spend eternity uh, uh, being tortured. And uh, just to kind of circle back to this uh, this uh, live journal entry by uh, Tom Beerbaum. Uh, Tom Beerbaum writes, This was also the issue where Rond Vidar was going to die, being literally eaten alive on page two. In this case, it was Mary who protested and got Keith to relent. So it turned out Vidar wasn't eaten alive. He was being eaten alive repeatedly and then mystically restored so he could endure the torment all over again. And by coming up with a torture a lot worse than just being eaten alive once, we managed to impress Keith enough that uh, he could keep Rond alive and not have to come up with someone to be killed in his place. I'd say Rond owes Mary a very large debt. Thanks to her intercession, he went from being killed off in a most gruesome fashion to eventually becoming the paramour of lovely Laurel Gand. Quite an improvement in the character's fortunes, to say the least, and I kind of have to agree. So, this is, again, this is just one of those times when the art, I think, really, just the GIF's art just really goes above and beyond. Because at the bottom of page two, uh, we don't really see too much of anything. We just see that, basically, Ron Vidar's mouth has just been vanished, you know, like in The Matrix, when... Uh, Agent Smith, you know, fucked up Neo's mouth. Same basic thing is going on here with Ron Vidar. So he can't even scream in agony as he's getting eaten alive again and again. This little holding area, this pen that he's being kept in, is covered in his blood. Uh, he's uh, he's obviously just in excruciating, agonizing pain. Uh, he's covered in sweat and blood and all of this other stuff. And it's just... It's not gory or gruesome or anything like that. It's it's suggestive enough that you you get the idea of what's happening on the page, but you're not being overly grossed out with gore and all that gross stuff, you know? It's just again, it's really well done and to me it takes it takes an extreme talent to have this kind of restraint, you know? Uh, it's just incredibly well done and I just love it. So at the bottom of page three, Mordru gets the bad news from his probe saying, Hey, boss, the Legionnaires, they're getting back together, and I don't think they're up to any good. And so from there, we we cut to Wynoth. And here again, something is being suggested here, all right? If you're familiar, even in passing, if you're familiar with 
Legion lore, then you're pretty well aware of the fact that Garth Rands and Mecht Rands, they're brothers, but they've been pretty serious, bitter enemies for quite a long time now. And here, they're in business together, and not only are they business partners, they seem to... They seem to be just very friendly with each other, very warm uh, with, with, with each other. And it, again, it just begs the question, you know, what has changed? And, you know, not necessarily everything from the five-year gap is going to get filled in, but I do kind of like the idea of people who were once enemies with one another making peace. You know, that maybe they're not bitter arch enemies anymore who are trying to kill each other. That plays for me, especially considering that the enemies in this case are uh, Garth and Mech Rands and their brothers. You know, I don't know why, that just, that works for me. So, anyway. So, we basically get a, a little bit of a, a glimpse into Garth and Imra's life and... Basically, what it is to be in business with each other. This is a very successful company on the one hand, but, you know, it's like any company. They're having problems, you know. So, yes, times are good. They're doing very well, and they are very successful, but that doesn't mean that every day is a picnic, you know. And so I just I just dig that. Speaking of Wynoff and speaking of the Ranzes, we basically get a chance to... Uh, uh, we're going to drop in here with... Uh, Ayla Rands and uh, uh, Salu Digby, they're running around on a different part of Wynoth. And I guess this is like Wynothian custom or something like that, that the, the entire planet is, well, it's one big nudist camp. And so it's just kind of a cultural thing for them. When you get there, your clothes come off. It's not really a sexual thing. It's It's a social thing. It's a cultural thing. And so you see uh, Salu and Alia, or A, almost called her Alia, Ayla. So I don't know why, but it's always been kind of hard. This kind of goes into my the point that I made in the last episode, that a lot of these names weren't necessarily intended to be spoken out loud. And so there's that. But anyway, to kind of get to the point here, again, a lot of, a lot of, things are being hinted at here, or they're being set up here. This is on page six. We see statues of uh, former legionnaires, and there's the obvious uh, invisible kid, uh, Superboy, there's Pharaoh Lab, and then there's sort of a, a general, these gold statues, right, of those characters, but then there's also a, a, a general uh, memorial flame, whatever, for a variety of different characters, including Monel, and then also Tinyawazo. So again, we're supposed to ask ourselves, what the hell is going on? And as all of that's happening, you know, it comes out that these Legion statues, these used to be at at the Legion clubhouse. Basically, Garth bought these statues from EarthGov and had them moved over to Wynoth because otherwise. They probably would have been melted down. So, at least here, the statues can 
continue honoring and commemorating the characters that they're supposed to honor and commemorate. And the reason that I like this is, you know, the... The last thing that you could ever say about the Silver Age of uh, DC Comics, or Late Golden Age for that matter, Late Golden Age and the Silver Age, these people were by no means iconoclasts, you know? They very much believed in building memorials, building statues, and all this stuff. And it was just kind of those weird customs that, I'm going to be honest with you guys, I never completely figured out. You know, reading all those Golden Age stories and Silver Age stories of you know, all these different statues and dioramas and whatnot. Here, it actually does make sense because it's not just honoring these these characters that have fallen. In a weird kind of way, it's also paying tribute and honoring, paying tribute to and honoring what the Legion stood for, you know, what the Legion represented and what the galaxy, at least for now, has lost. And I just think it's really powerful. And it says so much about Garth that he would do this. And I think it says a lot about Ayla and Salu that they would make a point of swinging by these statues and these memorials to pay their respects. You know, it just, it means a lot. So anyway, moving on to page seven, we get into a, a sequence here where... Chameleon Boy and Cosmic Boy, uh, they basically uh, uh, head on over to the planet Rimbor, specifically to recruit uh, to, to recruit Ultra Boy into their rapidly reforming Legion of Superheroes. And here again, I'm not really going to protect against spoilers. Uh, this is page 7, panel 5. We're introduced to a character whose name we later find out is... Uh, Furball. This is actually Timberwolf, and he's in disguise. And there's a and there's some story bullshit. I, the, to be honest, the specifics of which I I'm kind of blanking on right now. But there's some story bullshit for why he's doing his kind of Sasquatch thing right here. And it's a little bit of a spoiler to say that, but it starts getting hinted at in issues to come who Furball really is. And so I'm just going to go ahead and roll it out there right now. This is actually Timberwolf. So there you go. So, but as all of this stuff is is going on, Chameleon Boy and Cosmic Boy, they're talking to each other. They're following Furball out of the bar. And we see at the bottom of page seven that Mordrew is still keeping tabs on him. He knows what's going on. So... Moving ahead, this is getting into to page 8. Again, at the very bottom we see that Mordrew is still listening in. He still knows what's going on. As Ultra Boy, Chameleon Boy, and Cosmic Boy are reunited with each other, they're, they're basically, they just couldn't be happier to see one another. This is, this is, a, this is a, a moment for, for happiness before... Cosmic Boy makes his big pitch, but we'll circle back to that soon enough. Getting into page nine, it gets we we see a dialogue between two of these uh, two different dominators here, and we get an idea at least a little bit of what it is that they're up to on of all places the planet Earth. If they were anywhere else, you could kind of guess what's going on, but they they somewhat hint 
at what their agenda is on this page, but at the same time, you're still supposed to ask yourself, what the hell's going on that these people are on the planet Earth? And what's going on is that they basically own EarthGov now. You know, they run everything from behind the scenes. Nobody knows that the Dominators are actually in charge. And I don't know, I just, I, I love that so much. But what's being hinted at here, they, I don't think they come right out and say it, but the only way that their dialogue makes sense at all is that if they're the ones who are basically responsible for releasing Roxas from prison, you know, he's obviously been released so that he can do their bidding. And so that's page nine. Speaking of doing their bidding, getting into page 10 and going on from there, basically Roxas catches up with, with Block and it would be nice to say that Roxas picks a fight Block puts, you know, he fights the good fight, he does his best, and he tries to, to, to end Roxas, but that's just not true. You know, this is a very one-sided massacre. Roxas finds Block, who's, for lack of a better way of putting it, he's basically hibernating. He shakes him out of his hibernation by blowing one of his arms off, uh, Block, it takes him a minute to, to get his bearings back. He realizes that he's under attack by Roxas. He goes on the offensive, and it's just not enough. You know, he's he basically just gets completely wiped out. And before he dies, and I think Beerbomb was talking about this just a second ago, before he dies, he has this, I don't know what you want to call it, fever dream? basically a dream of descending down into the core of some planet or another, understanding that this is going to result in his death. This is the way of his species. This is how they live. And this is how they die. And so in his fever dream, the final words uh, that he says uh, are, yes, yes, I am ready, meaning he's ready to die. And then midway through page 13, he really does die. And honestly, what what kind of moves me about this is, I guess, the, the, digni the dignity that he shows in the face of death, uh, the poignance of his death, and just, just the senseless butchery that his death represented. I don't really... Like I say, I'm not, I don't really consider myself to be a Legion fan in the strictest sense of the word. And so as a result, you know, I can't sit here and tell you that, man, I just got so choked up reading Block's death. It just, it, it, it hit me where I live, got me right in the feels. It, it's not even like that. It's it's just the the senseless butchery that, that's going on here. It's just sad, you know? So, anyways. Um... As all of this is happening, what we realize is that the Dominators have been watching the the murder of Block, and they're they're not sickened, they're they're not sad. There's no remorse, there's no regret whatsoever. If anything, they're impressed. They say one of them says, "I believe we found our man," at the bottom of page thirteen, and the same video feed that the Dominators watched. Siobhan Aaron watches. Uh, this is on uh, page 14. She's basically, 
She's a lot more heartbroken about this than I am, put it that way. And this is somebody that she was friends with, she was close to, and she understood that he was just such a gentle a gentle person and to get murdered in such a brutal way. I mean, obviously, well, that's, that's very upsetting to her. So anyway, getting into page 15, back on the, the planet Tharn, we basically get an idea of what it is that, that more Drew's up to here. Uh, Basically, he's not happy. If it wasn't clear before, he's not happy about the fact that uh, the 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 legionnaires are regrouping, and so what what we see here is that he's starting to make a plan to resist the legion. So, guys, this is the amount of enemies that the Legion of Superheroes, even now, five years after their defeat, they still have in the galaxy where. The Dominators want to stop them from regrouping. Mordru wants to stop them from regrouping. And before too much long, too much more time passes, we're going to uh, catch up with some other villain who also wants to stop the Legion from regrouping. So that's what a threat the Legion represents. You know, that just this off chance that they might get the band back together is enough that's enough to to cause serious panic among some of their most dangerous enemies and i just like the fact that that says so much about the legion you know not just their raw firepower although i guess there's that but just the the dream and the ideal that the legion of superheroes represents is such a threat to the powers that be the powers that want to be the powers that will someday be these people, these agencies, these institutions, these villains cannot take the chance of the Legion of Superheroes getting back together. And so it's it may have seemed like a small thing to Chameleon Boy back in uh, uh, issue number one to suggest to uh, Cosmic Boy, hey, we need to get back together. We need to bring the Legion back. It may have seemed like a small thing at the time, but that was the first snowflake in a blizzard of shit that ultimately, yes, is going to have a happy ending. But still, you know, a lot of people have a vested interest in making sure that the Legion stays gone. Now, excuse me while I get a sip off of my Coke here. I'm also going to uh, get a couple drags of uh, vape here because I've been sitting here running my mouth virtually nonstop for, it uh, looks like we're closing in on an hour. Early, we're over 45 minutes at any rate, so uh, I think I've earned just a quick little break here. So just one second. All right. So getting into page 16, this is the actual offer now. 
that a chameleon, uh, chameleon boy is uh, making to Ultra Boy. The long and the short of it is, hey, we're bringing the Legion back together. It's going to be me and Cosmic Boy. Do you want in? And of course, Ultra Boy wants in on that. How would he not? So this is probably, honestly, I'm going to read between a lot of different lines here, and I'm going to suggest to you guys that Ultra Boy has been waiting for this for quite a while now. You know, he's wanted this ever since the Legion went away in the first place. Now, it kind of makes sense to me that Ultra Boy wouldn't be the guy that tries bringing back the Legion himself, you know, personally. First off, he's just not really a leader in the visionary sense that Cosmic Boy is, you know? And he's just not as analytical and organized as Chameleon Boy. I think... I think Ultra Boy... It's not that he's a meathead. I've never really liked seeing Ultra Boy written that way. It's not so much that he's a meathead, but it's it's just... This is a guy that understands his limitations. Like I said in the last uh, in the in the last episode, he's basically Han Solo with Superman's powers, and this is a guy who I don't think sees himself as being a general so much as a good captain. You know, he would know that he needs to in in situations like this, he needs to defer to Cosmic Boy or he needs to defer to uh, Chameleon Boy. You know, and I don't think that's necessarily a blow to Ultra Boy's ego. He's just a guy who has a very realistic idea and appraisal of his own capabilities. And he's not so foolish as to think that he could bring the Legion of Superheroes back all by himself. But he's wanted the Legion of Superheroes back ever since they went away to begin with. And so for him, this is music to his ears. Of course he wants to come back to the Legion. And so, you know, there's no arm twisting that was ever necessary here in the first place. So, I don't know. It just works for me. Now, we get, that's page 16. We get some, uh, a little bit of uh, character development with uh, Kono on page 17, which, I don't know, I mean, there are times when Kono works for me. There are times when I think she's kind of actually annoying, if anything. And here she's basically doing some exercise and we see that she she's training hard, but you kind of have to wonder how seriously she's actually taking her training, you know? So, I don't know. This either works for you or it doesn't. Anyway, so that's page 17. She's training. Page 18. This is when we start finding out a little bit more about just what a sick, demented, twisted fuck that Roxas really is. That he sent... Not only did he send Block's body to uh, to uh, uh, Garth Ranz's son on Wynoth, but he sent him in pieces, you know? And he even left it's just this fucking demented note for uh, little Graeme Ranz, Garth's son. He writes, Dear little Graeme, I understand your daddy likes to collect statues of dead heroes. Well, see if you can put this one together and give him a nice surprise. Hugs and kisses, your Uncle Roxas. And one of the things that I just like about this note, again, the GIF has his thing. It's like he never takes his thinking cap off in this series, right? All he does and all he seems to know how to do is be awesome. Not even on one page after another. It's one panel after another. It's just more and more GIF off, uh, awesomeness. 
this sick fuck note that Roxas sends to, to Graham Rands, it alternates different handwriting and different styles. So you see a little bit of uh, cursive. You see a little bit of uh, bolded print. You see a little bit of all capitalized uh, letters. You see a little bit of all lowercase letters. It, it, he's basically using a variety of different handwriting, uh, handwriting styles because that's the number of different personalities that he has inside of him. We get into this a little bit later on, but there's a lot of bullshit that's rattling around inside of Roxas's head that, yeah, he's the butcher of Trom, but being the butcher of Trom cost him something. And maybe the easiest way to say it is cost him his sanity. And I don't know as I'd go so far as to say he's got DID or anything like that, but there are other personalities, some would say kind of warped, corrupted versions of his victims, who are living inside of him. And so, yeah, you've got Roxas living inside of Roxas's head, but you've also got just these weird, twisted aberrations of some of the people that Roxas killed, the guilt that he carries around with him over all of that. And it's just, again... The GIF had his thinking cap on all through this. He never took his thinking cap off. And I just love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. I love all of this. It's great. So, anyway. Getting into page 19, we start seeing that, you know what? The Dominators are watching all of this. You know, goings on with uh, Wynoth and uh, Garth receiving Block's body, and they're starting to realize that, you know what? Maybe releasing Roxas from prison so that he could kill one of the Legionnaires as a warning, maybe this wasn't all that great an idea because there's a very real chance that this could galvanize this slowly reforming Legion of Superheroes. Instead of slowing them down, this may actually speed them up so maybe we should have thought about this a little bit more carefully. Maybe we shouldn't have released Roxas, of all people, from prison. So one Dominator is basically saying all that stuff to the other Dominator. But the other Dominator is... Again, if you have any doubt about who's really calling the shots on EarthGov, this, I think, pretty well gives it away. Uh... This is uh, page 19, panel 8. What looks to be the lead dominator is saying, No, this is merely a test of our mastery of the humans. We will maneuver them to cover our path. The ex-legionnaires will never know, meaning that we released Roxas. The ex-legionnaires will never know that we released Roxas and that we control EarthGov. The Council will never know that we released Roxas. And it, this basically spells out or at least it very heavily, heavily, very heavily implies that the Dominators basically control all of EarthGov at this point. So, so there's that. It's, again, just incredibly insightful, incredibly well-written dialogue, amazing characters. I fucking love the GIF. This is just so good. So good. So that's page 19, getting into uh, page 20. This is, uh, it, it's basically following Cosmic Boy around on Rimbor. And we base, he's basically wandering around. He's all by himself. And 
we're we're treated to uh to his internal uh, monologue going on here, where he's feeling all right. You know, he has no idea how much trouble he's in. He's feeling all right just about now. You know, uh, he's really happy. He's excited about where things are going. He's he's you know up for the game. Just overjoyed that he's slowly piecing the the Legion of Superheroes back together. And he even sends a, uh, uh, I guess this is a handwritten letter, uh, to his wife, uh, Lydda. He says, God, Lydda, I miss you already. It's going to be so hard being away from you, but one thing for sure, this is going to be worth it. Long live the dream. Love, rock. And this is, this page right here, this is basically the official end of this story. There's a little bit more that we need to get into. Um, but before we move on to that stuff and everything that gets implied there, um, I want to, there was something I forgot to mention. This was actually back on page eight in uh, panel two. Um, this is basically a scan of, uh, uh, Jonah's security system as Cosmic Boy and Chameleon Boy are riding down the elevator to, to meet Ultra Boy. Ultra Boy, he basically scans both of them. And confirms their identities. And so it says, subject number one, Reap Daggle. And the description says, Durlin Shape Changer. Subject number two, it says, is Rock Crin. And uh, the description says, Brawlian. No magnetic abilities. Probable exposure to damper field extensive injuries. And this is just a good reminder to us. This may actually make explicit something that was implied before, but if it wasn't said before, or if it wasn't even implied, it's explicit here that Rock doesn't have his his uh, his magnetic powers, guys. He is powerless, and there's an issue that's going on there that you know future issues are going to elaborate upon. Some things happened, and there's a very good reason why it is that Rock doesn't have his magnetic powers anymore. And so, so that's pretty much that. Now, after the last, the last page of, or I guess the official last page of the story, this is, like I said, this ends with a handwritten letter that Rock sent to Lita. This is the last official page of the story on page 22. We get some text pages, like I said, it looks kind of like an iPad that we're looking at here. And then from there, it's back to Shanghala, where we see it's basically what looks like this isn't even a, an internal, it's not an internal monologue. It's not even an internal dialogue in a certain sense. It's almost like a, a an internal trilogue. There are basically three inner voices that are talking to each other, and it's only made clear who one of them is at the very end, but it's pretty clear that these three voices are in some type of conflict with one another. And in the very last panel, it's revealed that number one, this is Shanghala. Number two, this is uh, Monel's grave. And number three, Monel is still alive. And the very last panel, we see the smoldering uh, uh, wreckage of his headstone as naked Monel flies off into outer space. But before he does, in panel eight, 
he comes face to face with somebody. We see uh, one naked body looking at another naked body, and so it's not really clear here who it is and what's going on. And, you know, there's there's a lot of bullshit that goes in with this. I don't want to get too much into it, at least in this episode, because, well, I mean, number one, I've gone a kind of long here as it is. But number two, we're going to start getting answers to all of this in uh, issue number four. And so I don't want to, I don't want to waste any of that here. But suffice it to say, I think if you were a hardcore Legion of Superheroes fan, you read this issue when it first came out, and you see this very this very last panel here where Monel is still alive, this would have been a big holy shit moment, you know? Like this is so much bigger than you ever thought in the first place. And I just, God, I just love this issue. It's so good. I, I love this series. I love the GIF on this series. This is just so, so, so fucking good. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Now, guys, just fair warning, in case it wasn't clear for those of you who don't get it, I would say that five years later is basically, this is comics at its most impenetrable, right? You, you don't necessarily need to be a Legion of Superheroes continuity expert to understand the story that's going on here and all of these different characters and the histories and all that stuff. But I imagine it, it helps a lot. But, you know, the simple fact of the matter, guys, is that, you know, when it when it comes to characters like Spider-Man, you've got the night that Gwen Stacy died, you know? And that's an accessible story that I think just about anybody can read and they can at least understand the drama and the emotion of it, you know? Even if they're not super knowledgeable about Spider-Man, even if they don't necessarily understand how important Gwen Stacy is, they can at least read the night Gwen Stacy died and understand that this is a really big deal and they can follow the story and enjoy it, you know? Batman Year One, same thing. You know, anybody can sit there, read that story and understand it, you know? And I would even say the same thing is true of Watchmen. I think one of the reasons that Watchmen was so lauded as it was by the literati, uh, just kind of snooty fucking hipster douchebag elite is the fact that it requires nothing. It requires nothing of you. You don't need to know anything um, about the history of the, uh, of the Watchmen universe. Everything that you need to know about these characters in Watchmen, it, it begins on page one of Watchmen number one. And then it concludes with the last page of the final issue. That's everything you need to know, at least for my money, that's everything that you need to know about Watchmen. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of uh, people who don't normally get into comics love Watchmen so much because it, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a self-contained, or at least at one time, it was a self-contained and kind of immaculate work and it didn't require you to, to understand and grasp year after year after year after year of continuity of history of character motivations of character dynamics this character died this character came back to life etc um so watchmen has watchmen i mean that's really you know the access point that a lot of people have with it you know and the list just goes on and on and on all right um like i say Spider-Man has the night that Gwen Stacy died. That's just one easy example I can come up with off the top of my head. 
That's an accessible story. Anybody can read it. Batman has year one. That's an accessible story. Anybody can read it. Watchmen has itself. Watchmen. That's an accessible story. Anybody can read it. But Legion of Superheroes in general, and I would say five years later in particular, this is basically comics at their most comic bookiest. This does depend, at least somewhat, upon your understanding and knowledge of the general history of the Legion of Superheroes, you know? You need to understand, you know, at least a little bit about who these characters are, because that's one of the reasons it hits home so hard when you find out exactly why it is that Cosmic Boy doesn't have his powers, the exact circumstances where he lost his powers, who's responsible for it, and all of that, you know? That moment falls fucking flat if you don't understand at least a little tiny bit about the Legion of Superheroes and how this how this comic book has always worked. That along with the fact that five years later, these are not necessarily the most accessible stories uh, to begin with anyway. You know, it's all very choppy and kind of abstract in some places. And I can understand where five years later is kind of a turnoff for some people. But guys, I gotta tell you, I fucking love comics. I love the stories that you can tell in comics. You know, the, the types of stories that you can tell in, in, I would say, only in comics. No other medium, not even television, can quite match what you can do with comics, you know? And so, for me, this is a, a very special medium, and I kind of consider five years later to be that rare type of comic book that tries to explore the potential of comics as a, as a medium for telling stories. Not to mention the fact that the stories that are being told are just fucking great, and I love them. I, I love the stories that are being told. I enjoy how they're being told. But just on a technical level, the ambition of wanting this comic to be something more than just the standard issue type thing, I just love it, you know? And so what I'm saying is I wouldn't necessarily recommend five years later to somebody who knows nothing at all about comics but if you consider yourself to be at least kind of knowledgeable about legion of superheroes or if you just want to read a different type of comic book guys i'm going to be totally honest with you i think you could do a hell of a lot worse than check out five years later and at least just give it a go because you know i again i recognize i'm i'm a big nerd i'm the guy that loves comics if anything maybe a little bit too much but the fact of the matter is I, I'd like to think I know quality when I see it, and this, my friends, is a quality product. So, based on everything I've said, if you think these comics are worth checking out, I couldn't more highly recommend it. But, um, again, I'm running long, so I'm just going to go ahead and shut up. So, I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next time. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. 
You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>